Well, this last month has been a month of conferences for me, which is not normal. I don't actually like conferences. I tend to usually leave them feeling bad about myself, um, after hearing about how great everyone else is. Uh, but this month, for some reason, I had three in a row. The first of them was just outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I went on a road trip with three friends of mine who are also pastors, and uh, we drove down. And one of the things that we did, because we got there a day early, I said, well, we've got to go to Gettysburg National Park. We've got to go to the, the, the site of the famous Civil War battle. And I, I love history, and I love visiting places like this. So uh, I was driving the rental car, so I was basically in control. And so I took them down to this place, and we're, we're seeing these artifacts and monuments just everywhere in this vast sp- open space, and it was just a powerful place to be. Um, at the end of it, you know, one of the guys was actually sitting in the car, like, to give me a hint that he was done, like he was just tired of this little tour. And so off we went. But it was a reminder to me of the significance of place, which is what we're talking about this month. Over the long history of God's interactions with his people, there are countless examples of how specific places have been used to provide guidance in life and faith. Looking back at some of these stories will remind us not only how God has used place in the past, but will open our eyes up to how he's using it today. I want to read just a brief segment from Eugene Peterson's book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. He writes that history is important, for without it we are at the mercy of our whims. Memory is a data bank we use to evaluate our position and make decisions. With a biblical memory, we have 2,000 years of experience from which to make the -the off-the-cuff responses that are required each day in the life of faith. If we are going to live adequately and maturely as the people of God, we need more data to work from than our own experience can give us. And so to set things up this morning, I'm going to flip back the calendar all the way to 2100 B.C., Now, last week we met Abraham, who was called to leave his father's home and to set off on a journey toward the promised land, which was the first place that we are looking at in this series. I want to read from Genesis 22, one of the most significant events in Abraham's life, verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, I share this story on Mother's Day to remind us all of the importance of mothers. You notice that it was very early in the morning that Abraham left. Why? Because he didn't want his wife to find out. If she knew that he was about to walk up this mountain and sacrifice their son, she would have been like, I don't care who talked to you in the night. It's not happening. But Abraham went. Abraham went, he took Isaac, and he went up, and he was about to do this unbelievable thing, and then God stops him in in his tracks, and he says, no, 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 I will provide a sacrifice. And then he pronounces this blessing in Genesis 22, 18, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a little while. Fast forward then, 700 years, the Israelites have endured four centuries of slavery in Egypt, only to be led out by a series of miraculous events courtesy of the tag team duo of God and Moses working together. They are out of the slavery now, they're wandering the desert for 40 years until they reach their destination of the promised land. And so what was it like as they were wandering? 
Well, there was one p- interesting factor that begins a bit of an introduction for us in this morning's theme. We read in Exodus 33 that Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. So, I mean, this passage basically says all that's there. You you can imagine the Israelites, they're wandering through the desert. They don't have permanent homes, so they're setting up tents wherever they go. But Moses would set up this one unique tent, and that is where, where God would come to meet with him face to face, the Scripture says. So last week, Graham introduced the idea of God providing a place for his people, a land. And it's during these same wandering years that the concept developed of providing a place for God. So as soon as God starts saying, I want to provide a place for you, his people start saying, well, then we want to provide a place for you. So we'll, we'll make a tent. That, that'll be a pretty good start. And then God's like, all right, that's, that sounds pretty good. So the Lord says to Moses, we read this in Exodus 40, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. And so God likes this idea, and he says, okay, let's do this a little more permanently here. Now, he introduces us to something that's very important, the Ark of the Covenant. This was this meticulously crafted golden box. In it were the the tablets that the Ten Commandments had been carved on. There's this space at the top, these two kind of angelic winged features and creatures, and on the top, that is where the presence of God would, would rest. And so it was this very sacred place, this, this sacred place within this tabernacle. That's where the presence of God would dwell on the earth. Now, if you start reading the Bible on page one, it's around here where you start nodding off because there are all kinds of very specific directions about how to build this Ark of the Covenant, how to set up this tabernacle. I think the next slide shows a picture. Yeah, so this is like a, a modern kind of rendition of what that tabernacle would have looked like. So God's like, you got to make it this big, and you got to set it up like this, and, and this is how the room's got to be. And the Bible records all of this, and you start kind of dozing off thinking, why does any of this matter? And then in Exodus 40, verse 38, we read, so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So this is where the presence of God was during those wilderness years. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. And that's the way things were until the Israelites finally entered the promised land. Now we're getting closer to where this morning's reading picks up, but not quite yet. But I want to remind you, in case you happen to be nodding off already, that this is not only the past. This isn't just some interesting stuff that happened thousands of years ago, but it's actually our past. If we want to understand what it means to be the people of God today, we need to understand what it meant to be the people of God all of these years ago. Frederick Buechner writes that to remember the past is to see that we are here today by grace, that we have survived as a gift. Well, the centuries went by until David became Israel's second king, and he had this longing not to have a a tabernacle, but to have a permanent home for God. He longed to build a temple But because of his exploits in war, God would not allow him to build one. Now, at the end of 2 Samuel, around the year 960 BC, King David purchased a plot of land from Aruna the Jebusite, and he built an altar to God. He built that altar on the very same mountaintop that Abraham had built an altar, where God had intervened and announced a blessing. An interesting coincidence. 
Now, the reading that we had this morning came from the book of 1 Kings, and one of the other things that you notice if you read the Bible through is there is a lot of repetition. There are a couple of parallel histories that happen, and, and the stories just really repeat themselves, and for the most part, they're identical. But every once in a while, one of the historians records a piece of information that the other doesn't. And so while our reading came from 1 Kings, I want to actually read from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, as the, the historian introduces Solomon's temple. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the place provided by David. This is beautiful stuff here. There's just something about a place. So the second conference I attended this month was in Waterloo, so nothing really exciting to tell about that. But this last week, I was in Victoria. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to Victoria, British Columbia, but this is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And part of it is, you know, before we left, there were no buds on the trees and the grass was still brown here. So we walked into this beautiful paradise, um, beautiful waterfront, our apartment that we were staying at had a view of the mountains in the background. We went whale watching. I mean, it was just incredible. This place is just beautiful. And I had this thought when I was there, why does anyone live anywhere else? Like, why do we choose to live here? And I kept thinking this everywhere I went, these beautiful trees and flowers and ocean and everything. It was just incredible. And I thought, well, it's because this is home. Again, there's just something about place. It roots us. Well, the first thing we learn in our reading from 1 Kings is that it had been 480 years since the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt on route to the promised land. The dream of having a fixed place to worship God had been a long time coming, but finally the time was here. And we read in 1 Kings 6, 11 to 13, the word of God, the Lord, came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Now, this is a remarkable development in the history of religion. God, who the people of that time, when they would have thought about gods, first of all, there would have been multiple gods, and they would have thought of gods as, as inhabiting certain like, parts of the world, like the sky or the, the waters, and, and they imagined like, the, the sun being a god, and, and gods were all, they were distant and connected, and here the God of the Israelite people announces that he is going to dwell among his people. This is a dramatic shift in the way that people thought about religion. But this language sounds a little familiar to us, doesn't it? This idea that God is going to dwell among his people. Well, John, writing his gospel, uh, the story of Jesus' life, he picks up on this language. In the first chapter of his gospel, he makes this comment. He says, the word, the logos, this divine principle that undergirds everything in the world, which he identified as Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The same picture, the same image, making a direct connection between the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, and this ancient promise that God had made to Solomon, which we now understand was both a present and a future promise. That when God was making this promise to Solomon, if you build this temple, I will dwell among my people. It was a present promise that, yes, I will dwell in this temple, but he was actually also pointing forward to something else, that this temple will in some way point to something when I will actually dwell among my people in an even more significant way. 
But first, Solomon had to actually build the temple, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. A workforce in excess of 150,000 people was used in the construction of the temple. Now, that's a lot of people. And if we want to be honest about what we read in Scripture, we have to acknowledge that a number of those 150,000 people were forced laborers. So slavery was used in the building of God's temple. There's a lot of irony in there, and, uh, and we find these kinds of stories throughout Scripture where we wonder, what is happening in, in the world here? What, how, is, how is God's temple being built by people who are, who are forced to labor? Well, not only shady employment practices, but over-the-top opulence as well. The inside of the temple and the most holy place were overlaid with pure gold and were adorned with precious stones. Now, this most holy place, again, you got a little bit of a picture from the reading earlier. There was this, this separate place that was to be set apart, that you build the temple, you construct the temple, and then within it there's this curtain that goes across, and then there's this particular place where you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God's presence is going to be, and and no one's going to walk into that place, only the high priest, and only once a year. This is a, a really sacred and special place. And I was looking, I was doing some research into the, just how opulent this, this uh, temple of Solomon's was, and again, if you go through and you, and you read the footnotes in the Bible, you can, you can figure out how all these, these Old Testament measures, how much these things actually mean, and how much gold was used in the building of the temple, and how much silver was used in the building of the temple. And someone, you know, d- took that number and multiplied it by the current market value of gold and determined that the gold and silver used to build Solomon's temple, today's dollars would be worth about $178,860,000,000, give or take a few shekels. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to put into a temple. I mean, imagine the kind of charisma that Solomon would have to have to, to raise that kind of a building fund. The other interesting thing about the temple is its size. Now, the, the Old Testament uses this measure of cubits. And again, if you don't read the footnotes, you have no idea what's going on. And you probably in your mind have an idea of how big this temple was. I mean, if you're spending $178 billion on something, it's got to be this massive structure. But here's the interesting thing. I actually did the little conversion of the, of the cubits, and I, and I pasted it out, and you could build Solomon's temple easily inside the sanctuary. Tear out the pews, and Solomon's temple could be built in this space right here. That's crazy. This temple that God had his people build fit in this little space. Well, he spent a long time, 1 Kings 6, 38, our reading ended on this note that Solomon spent seven years building it. A ton of people, a ton of money, all these resources, and seven years of time. And all of that is pretty impressive until you read the next verse. And this is one of the things the Bible does for us. I mean, you got to understand that we have these chapter numbers and these headings, and they're great because they help us read the Bible easier. It's easier to find, okay, there's the story about Solomon building the temple. But one of the things we tend to do is, is stop too soon. And so I ended this one naturally at the end of, of chapter 6. But at the beginning of chapter 7 reveals a little something about Solomon. So he had spent seven years building it, and if you just keep reading, it says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. All right? So this is impressive, the size, the the opulence, the time he took to build his temple, but he actually spent like twice as long building his palace. Now his palace was about 7,500 square feet compared to this paltry 1,800 square feet of the temple. It's easy to get lost in the cubits, but a modern-day parallel might help clear things up. So here's about an 1,800-square-foot house. That's actually my house, um, just uh, under 1,800 square feet. And here is the 7,500-square-foot house, all right? So let's go back. 
temple, and then forward, palace. One more time. Temple, and there we go, palace. So you see what's going on here, right? Like Solomon is doing this wonderful thing for the Lord, but he's doing a much more wonderful thing for himself, right? He's got this incredible palace. It was just one of the many signs of, of Solomon's undoing, if you will. Well, the temple stood for 370 years until the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in the year 587 B.C., and he carried away what was left of its treasures, including the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people was gone. Well, what does that mean? The next season of Israel's life was spent in exile, 70 years away from their home, 70 years without God's presence in their midst. Our neighbors were away for their home, from their home about a month ago. Uh, they weren't away for 70 years. They were away for about a week, and, but they were in Florida. And as they, were, they had their kids and they were traveling, they were in the line to get into Disney. They got a text from a friend saying, hey, I didn't know you were getting your roof done while you were away. And they replied back. They're like, no, we're not. Why would you say something like that? And then the friend texts them back a picture of a bunch of roofers tearing the shingles off of their house. I guess a month earlier, they had got a quote on their roof, and somehow the roofing company gave their crew the wrong file. And so they, they basically get this text, and these roofers are up there, and they're tearing the shingles, and they're redoing their whole roof and the whole deal. And meanwhile, they didn't order this to be done at all. Anyways, more, most construction projects are more intentional than that, right? <laughs> Including the rebuilding of the temple. So God's people are away in exile in Babylon for, um, for 70 years, but then something happens. You see, the Babylonians are overtaken by the Persian Empire, and then things begin to shift here. The book of Ezra in the Old Testament tells us about this shift, the first few verses. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go to, up to Jerusalem in Judah to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where their survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Now, this is significant. So God's people are off in exile, and then one dominating ruler takes over the other dominating ruler, and God speaks to this ruler and says, it's time for you to give my people back their land, and it's time for you to give them the provisions they need to rebuild the temple that the previous empire tore to the ground. Cyrus was not Hebrew. He'd never had any interactions with this God before. As Graham shared last week, the promised land was a conditional promise. God said he would give this land to his people, but there were conditions. And if they didn't fulfill those conditions, then they'd lose the land. And it happened. But God's like, I'm going to give you another chance here. We're going to try this again. And so the reconstruction of the second temple was an immediate priority once the Jews returned. First, rebuilding the altar of God on the exact spot where it formerly stood. You know, according to Jewish tradition... That location, the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, which was the same place that David bought from Arunah the Jebusite, which was the same place that they built the, whole, the most holy place in the temple, 
that same place where they rebuilt the holy place in the second temple, they believed that this was the foundation stone from which God created the whole earth, that this is where all of creation kind of burst out of, that this place is so significant. It gives you a bit of a sense of why there's so much conflict in that part of the world still to this day. Well, the Jews finally had their second temple, even if it was a shadow of its former self. They certainly didn't have $178 billion to throw around this time. But they built a, a makeshift temple, something where they could go and have a place to worship. The centuries passed, and a new king, Herod, took the throne with a vision to make his version of the temple even more magnificent than Solomon's. And we can take a look at modern kind of renditions of what it most likely would have looked like in the days of Herod, in the days of Jesus. See, now we're caught up to 2,000 years ago, the temple that Jesus would have walked around, the temple where he would have gone to worship. And our second reading introduces us to an interaction of Jesus at this temple. Jesus left the temple, was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Look at this place. This is powerful. What an amazing monument to our God. Like, look at this great thing that has been done here. And how does Jesus respond? You see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Well, we'll come back to that strange response in a minute, but first let's finish the story. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD as a punishment for the Jewish rebellion. Eventually, it was replaced with a Roman temple to Jupiter, and for the past 1,300 years, the site has been home to the Islamic shrine known as the Dome of the Rock, which you can see there in a current photograph. Today, all that remains of the second temple is what is known as the Wailing Wall, which is pretty darn close to what Jesus said while his disciples were there staring in awe. Now, here's an interesting question for us. If Jesus could so easily dismiss the temple, then what on earth was the point of God giving such detailed instructions on how to build it? Well, a few weeks ago, I talked about marriage. And I was saying that marriage was a good thing, but I was saying that one of the, the really good things about marriage is that it actually points us to something else. It points us beyond the relationship between a husband and a wife to the relationship that God longs to have with his people. And so marriage becomes a sign that points us to something even more significant. And the temple is also a sign. It was an end. It was a place of worship. It was for the Jewish people. But it was also a sign pointing to another end. But it maybe wasn't something that the people of the day understood. So in 1871, some archaeologists unearthed an inscription on an entrance to where the temple would have been. And this is what it says. Now, of course, no one here other than Ron Croker can read that. But uh, so let's go to the next slide. This is what it says. Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. So this is the, the warning that was placed on the outside of the temple. Okay. Clearly, a far cry from what God had promised Abraham. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And here at the building of the temple is an inscription saying, no outsiders allowed or we'll kill you. All right? So they missed something in the heart of what God was trying to do in the building of this temple. 
So what would, ha- would happen with Jesus? We, we all know this, uh, or many of us will be familiar with the story of uh, Jesus found in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. Let me read it for you here. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money lenders and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Well, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed with the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When the first temple was destroyed, God called his people back to begin its restoration. But as we've learned, that didn't happen with the second temple. God never called his people back to rebuild the temple. Jesus said, this temple's going to be torn down, and it's going to be raised again in three days. What was he talking about? He was talking about his body that he was this new temple. Now, there's this beautiful passage at the end of Matthew 27, and this is just a great reason to read your Bible because we can read a passage like this, and without understanding everything that we've read up until this, this point, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. But knowing what we've talked about, I want to read this passage. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's being executed for claiming that he was the Son of God. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was the curtain there for? In Exodus 26, we're told the curtain was hung to separate the holy place from the most holy place. Now, if the curtain is torn in two, what is not happening anymore? The most holy place is not being separated from the holy place. The presence of God, the holiest place in the world, is now bursting forth into all of the world. That's what happened at Jesus' death. And that's why the temple didn't need to be physically rebuilt, because it was going to be rebuilt in the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews didn't get it. They missed it. They put a thing saying no outsiders allowed, and Jesus says everyone's allowed. Everyone is invited. No, this time there would be no rebuilding, but the temple of Jesus' body would be raised. And it's the same pattern of death and resurrection that we are all invited to participate in. Paul would write to the church in Rome, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And as was mentioned earlier, we're going to stand outside in the courtyard just after 11 o'clock this morning and we're going to go through the, walk through the water of baptism with Christian and with Susie and we are going to watch them put one way of life to death and be raised to new life the temple being torn to the ground, the temple being raised. We live our lives in that same pattern, celebrating the new temple that God has been building his church into. Paul asked this rhetorical question of the Corinthian church. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Do you see the parallel here? 
Remember God's words to Solomon. I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. God continues to live among his people. He will not abandon us. One more time from Paul's writings, this time to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. He's talking about the fact that the early church, they struggled with this idea of letting outsiders in. They struggled with this concept of Gentiles. How can they possibly be part of God's family? But Paul says, through him, we both... Jew and Gentile have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Love the imagery here. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God is building a new temple, but this time it's in His people. Now, Paul tells us, it's not in a tent, it's not in a tabernacle, it's not in a most holy place behind a curtain in a temple, it's right smack dab in the midst of God's people, in the midst of us. And so the global blessing that God promised through Abraham starts right here with you and I. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I'm going to invite you to stand. Next Sunday,